Garrett a hand for leading us this morning. That was fantastic. Thanks, Garrett. Um, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy Fellowship, uh, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And, and that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who love God and who love people. And so um, it's a joy to get together with you guys this morning. I see some new faces here as well. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. Um, we are going to continue a series that we began last week in the book of 1 Thessalonians called Thrive, uh, Flourishing and Faithfulness. And so uh, on your way in, if you didn't grab one, go ahead and grab uh, a 1 Thessalonians scripture journal, uh, just a way to get God's word in your hand. Uh, and then also uh, the discipleship guide that we put together. We're gonna be in week two where we're really looking um, at what does it mean uh, to be faithful followers. Like, like all of us follow something. All of us follow someone. We're, we're all defined by and described by that which gives uh, uh, influence over our lives. And so we said last week, looking at um, how the Thessalonian church uh, was founded uh, in great adversity and trial and challenges and, and how it endured and flourished, um, that, that part of that is because of the faithfulness of the people who heard the good news of Jesus Christ, said, yes, I'm on team Jesus, and it has an implication for me individually, but also has an implication for us as, as a church, as, as the church. And so today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you, you can turn there. That's where we're going to be. I'm going to break this out in, into five sections that, that are not going to be equally weighted. So if you're like, whoa, he's, he's really lingering on this. Like, like don't worry, we'll, we'll get out of here on time. Um, and so, um, but this is a letter, by way of recap, that, that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he helped plant that he has great affection for. It's a church um, that he is really thankful for that we'll see here uh, in a, a moment. Uh, and it's a church that he cares very deeply about. And so he wants to commend them on uh, how they are in following Jesus uh, and how they end up being an example to others. And, and in doing so, um, the, the, some aspects of this sermon and of this text are, are really celebratory about the ways that they're growing. Uh, and, then, and then also uh, in, in trying to, to mark, hey, look at the wins. Look at the ways God's worked in your life. That It is a, a call to continue in, in endurance and faithfulness as they Strive for, for flourishing and enjoy thriving even in the midst of adversity. So you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll start in verses 2 through 3. It says this. This is Paul writing to a church in, the, in Thessalonica, a town um, in uh, Macedonia. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly, without ceasing, mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want us to know is that faithful followers lead to thankful leaders. See, Paul's thankful for them because they are a flourishing church, because they are a thriving church, and so faithful followers are, are, are remembered and prayed for by their leaders. 
There's a relationship that happens within the context of church and, and leadership between um, those who are leading and those who are part uh, of the church. And so we'll look uh, at that a little bit more next week when we dive specifically into leadership uh, that Paul talks about in chapter two. But, but here he begins with the depth of relationship that not just Paul has, but, but other people that were part of that ministry team has. Like, hey, when we're traveling and we're going from church to church to church and town to town and we're, we're getting our butt kicked by people that don't want to hear about Jesus, and we're moving on. You know what we say when we pray? Oh man, we're so thankful for the Thessalonian church. We're so thankful for your faithfulness. When we are before the Lord, we bring you before the Lord, and we pray for you. He says continually. And so there's a reason that he's thankful for them. He says he's thankful for all of them. I think that's interesting. I'll just say, as somebody who's been uh, in, in full-time ministry for 12 years, I don't know that in all earnestness I would always say, I am thankful for everyone that's been in and out of our church. I'm like, I mean, I, I'm just more fleshly than that, I think. I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're smiling and happy and you're engaged, that, like, that's fantastic. And if you're just like here and you're like, I can't stand you, I don't know why, why you're here in the first place. <laughs> but, um, you know, Paul's just like, no, no, I'm thankful for all of you. He's a great pastor. And it's a diverse church. It's a diverse church of religious backgrounds. It's a diverse church uh, between men and women. It's a diverse church of socioeconomic statuses. It's a diverse church uh, even of racial makeup. And he's just like, hey, hey, I don't just, I see you as individuals. He's like, but I love you as a body because you make up this diverse body of people all united around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he's thankful for them. And why is he thankful for them? Well, we see here that in some regards, it's, it's that this church, as diverse as they are, they have formed a culture that is distinct and is memorable and ends up serving as an example to churches for a couple thousand years afterwards. Like, it, it can almost seem perfunctory that, that if you read a lot of Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament, like to the Galatians and the Philippians, he's always like, yep, thankful for you guys, thankful for you guys. Even the Corinthians, he's like, I'm thankful for you, but if you could stop doing, like, breaking commandments and getting on the news, that'd be great. Um, they're just a really crazy, wild church. But with the Thessalonians, he's like, oh, we are thankful for all of you continually. There's some health there. And he wants to, like I said, encourage them, and he wants them to continue to flourish and to continue to thrive. And so the reason that he's so thankful for them is in verse 3, that flourishing followers embody faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. These are three key attributes of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to actually be a Christian? And, and the, these words, faith, love, and hope, uh, right? He doesn't just say, oh, we're happy for your faith, hope, and, and, and love. He even gives some modifiers to it. He gives some adjectives to describe. He says, hey, I'm, I'm thankful for your work of faith, for your labor of love, for your steadfastness or endurance of hope. And so, like, I think we're cool with faith, hope, and love, at least, like, I mean, you know, it's, it's not as popular now, but, like, a few years ago, right, like, if you just put faith, hope, and love on, like, a piece of distressed pallet wood, you know, maybe took it to a farmer's market, sell it on Etsy, you're like, yeah, that's, that's a $50 piece of pallet wood right there, right? And we're like, yeah, faith, hope, and love. It's like the Christian version of live, laugh, love, right? Eat, pray, love, whatever. 
But, but like, and you can go into homes and you can see those, right? We have those messages, you know, in, in homes at times. What you don't see, though, is the words that are before it. You, you've, I don't think you've ever gone to somebody's home and they're like, work, toil, endurance. Just like on a nice piece of pallet wood. Like, no. But, but yet, they're essential. They're, they're, they're part of Paul's kind of ingredients here or his culture of, uh, of a thriving Christian church um, because um, these aren't just words that, that we want to kind of think about that we hope maybe impact our attitude. No, faith, hope, and love are attitudes to aspire to. No, they're, they're actually attributes to actively embody. He's saying you have lived these out individually in your families and in the life of the church. And so he wants them to kind of grasp this uh, in a little more detail. Um, the NIV translation, I think, is really helpful for us to understand um, kind of how work and faith, labor, love, steadfastness, and hope work together. And so I'm going to work through these real quick. Number one, in the NIV, it says, your work produced by faith. So the first attribute of, of what, is it, what does it mean to, to be a thriving follower of Jesus? He says, your work produced by faith. Well, well what's, what's the object of faith? It's, it's the work of God. And so there, there, even when you hear the word work, there's still a resting aspect to it. Because faith is, in, in God is a backward-looking, rear-view, past-looking. God has been faithful here in the past. So I can now rely on God in the present and look to him in the future. So I want to be clear. It's not a blind faith. It's not like, well, we told you about Jesus. We told you about a guy who died and resurrected. And you guys are like, sure, I'll believe anything. Sounds great. I have faith. Why? I don't know. No, he's saying, hey, you have seen God work in and through your lives. You have you have faith of the God of creation who loved his people in the wilderness, took them out of slavery, like, like, like rebuked, corrected, lovingly led them and guided them as they were a nation of Israel, vacillating between faithfulness and, and, and folly. And you believe in, in the God that showed up in the personal work of Jesus Christ, who lived the life you couldn't live, who died the death you deserve, who rose again so you could have new life. And he's saying the outworking of that resting in what God has done also leads to some activity. It leads to something productive. And so it's not limited to belief, but it's a very productive faith. I trust what God has done, so now I'm free to go and do. I, I, I'm resting in what God's done. He set me free, he's made me new, and now I can walk out the new life that he has called me to. So to put it this way, it, it's a faith that is fruitful. It produces something in your life and in the lives of others. That was number one. Number two, your labor prompted by love. The NIV says your labor prompted by love. So work produced by faith is directed upwards towards God, right? Labor prompted by love is directed outward towards others. So as a Christian, you have a relationship with the God who made you, and, and that's great, but you don't get to, to say it just ends there. It, it, it changes you in such a way that impacts your relationship with other people, specifically within the life of the church as well. Jesus Christ said that my people will be known by their love. We, we kind of, oh man, we are not good at that. That's all right. 
That's what Jesus said. He said, well, you'll be known by your love for one another. Those are the, the horizontal relationships, if, if we will. It's the gospel community. And so a church devoted to love of one another uh, is important, but I, but I think we, we've got to define the word love, though, because, uh, I mean, we, we've got all sorts of different ways we think about love, particularly in a modern context. And so um, theologian Leon Morris, I, I leaned into his commentary uh, this week, and, and he just said, hey, you know, we read this as the word love. And when we read the word love, we, we, th we think of what's probably the Greek word eros. So I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson. So, so the word isn't eros here though, it's agape. So what's, what's eros? Uh, eros is, is an interesting word for love. It, it's, it's one where you, you see something that, that you desire. It stirs up desire in you. You see something, you're like, that is amazing. I want that, or I want to be in relationship with them, or I want to enjoy them. And so it, it, it drives you, and, and, it's, and it stirs up your affections. And, and in that stirring of affections, you see something, you want something, and your desire is to, in some way, shape, or form, possess that thing, or be in a possessive relationship with that person, so that they will make you happy. So it is a, for lack of a better term, a self-focused Love. It's where we get the word erotic from, actually. And I want to be clear, like, it's not always a, a terrible, evil, horrible thing. Um, it may not look like it, but I, I do at times intermittent fast. Um, and so um, going in from Friday into Saturday was one of those times. And my, my, my wife and I had to go uh, out to Whidbey Island. Had to, got to, go to Whidbey Island to watch uh, our kids do a cross-country meet. Um, always excited when the state of Washington doesn't staff the ferries enough. Uh, and so we, we had to go all the way around. Anyway, um, so I intermittent fasted in the morning. And then went on a two-and-a-half-hour road trip to south end of Whidbey Island. And then watched part of a cross-country meet. And I was hangry after that. Like, just... This, like, I was ready to eat the kids' snacks. Like, hey, I know you just ran that meat, but like, I'm gonna go ahead and have that piece, piece of muffin. So my wife and I went into this little town called Langley. We found this awesome, awesome brunch spot. And um, she ordered some French toast. I ordered this Southwestern scramble with chorizo and, and like eggs and, and cota cheese and like all these things. And, and I will tell you, I arrows that when I saw it. Like, I see that, I desire that, I want to possess that, I want that in me to make me happy. Okay, that's, all right? But we get, they, but that's how we think about love for everything. Oh, I love that person, why? They make me feel good. It's a self-focused love, which ultimately will lead to selfishness. And so when we say we have love for one another, it cannot be just, I feel good here. Or I like those people. And again, it's okay to like people. It's okay to feel good feelings. I mean, yes and amen. But it's not a love that is defined by something being desirous. Because if that was the case, then for you and I, because of our sin, God would look at us and say, hmm, I can't, I can't eros them because they're not desirous, because their sin makes them undesirable. So the word that's actually used here in the New Testament for love, often, and in this case, is the word agape. And, and, and that was actually a brand new concept of love that was exclusively Christian. So a new concept of love required a new word. And so the word agape was seen as the highest form of love. 
And the reason it was the highest form of love is because it referred to the love of God the Father for his people and how that love impacted them and led to their love of God the Father. And so it is not a self-focused, what can that person do for me or how can this make me happy? In fact, it is a selfless love that says, how can I show love? How can I give love? Eros, what can I take? Agape, what can I give? And so that is your love for one another. And so it, it's a love that is, is not just merely emotive or sentimental because a, a, a love that just is like uh, saying you love something or, or is just filled with sentimentality ultimately ends up being powerless and then, and then meaningless. This is an active love. And that's why it can even include the word like labor. That word labor is is a word that even translates better into toil. It is like, I am going to really pour it all out here in order to, to love this person. And it's a love that is demonstrated most clearly by Jesus Christ's labor of love on the cross. Where he says, I am, I know you are someone in need. I know that you are someone that needs to be loved, to feel love, to experience love. And so I'm going to actively love you, Jesus says, through self-sacrifice on the cross. And that, that active labor of love leads to you, experience we'll see in a moment, a new identity of being one who's loved. And that, that changes how you're able to love and engage with other people. This is an exclusively Christian concept. And I'll just tell you, this is not the way love is being talked about in our world today. In our world today, you're taught that you have to love yourself first before you can love anyone else. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do some self-care, that you shouldn't do some, some exploration, but, but, if, but if that's where it, it ends, and you're constantly focusing on how can I love myself, how can I love myself, how can I know myself, and you just get here, 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 that type of love is the most destructive force around because it leads to greater selfishness, not selflessness. It leads to, to bitterness and not tenderness and grace towards others. I've watched this in real time as people have gone through this. I just need to love myself better. Let me just be really clear. You will never be able to love yourself as much as God loves you in Jesus Christ. It is that love, a love from another, a love from someone who's truly worthy that can then bring actual healing that leads to you being a more humble and gentle and kind and loving person to the person around you. That if your sole focus is on how much you can love yourself, you will find yourself with less and less joy. Whereas we'll see here in a moment that when you have a love that is outward focused, like as you actually serve others, as you actually engage with others, as you sacrifice for and with others, that actually ends up leading to greater joy. So it's not losing yourself, but it is in fact sharing yourself with others, recognizing that they need to experience love, just like you need to experience love. And it has to come first from knowing how much you're loved by God. So eros, love, I desire, I want to possess. 
phileo love, that kind of brotherly love of just like, well, hey, we're, we're bros, we're mates. No, what God's calling us to, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, is to first both experience the agape love of God, the self-sacrificial love of God, and then live lives of agape love towards others. Thinking of others first and not yourself. A labor prompted by love. See, um, I, th I think we think that if we just live self-sacrificially, that somehow it's gonna lead to less joy, but I mean, Jesus Christ went through the ultimate sacrifice, and in Hebrews chapter 12, it said it was for the joy set before him that Jesus Christ endured the cross for you because he knew that that, that self-sacrificial love was going to take you from slavery, from death, into flourishing and life, from isolation and rebellion to citizenship and community. He's like, he's like, I can endure this because I know that there's joy on the other side of it. Love of others that you see valuable will be costly. True love doesn't coast, it costs. We see that in Jesus. Number three, talking about hope. He says, your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this, this could be the most difficult because sometimes when we talk about hope, we just kind of think about blind optimism. Like, well, I know that everything is totally crappy, but it'll probably get better. It might not. It just might not. If, if all of our hope is, is tied to our circumstances around us, then it only takes a prolonged season of negative circumstances to lead to our hope not being realized, hurting our, the way that we engage with others in love, and then ultimately losing faith. See, this is a hope, an endurance in hope. It's inspired by Jesus Christ. And, and so it, it's not a limited optimism because adversity, if it doesn't transform into prosperity, but rather experiences tragedy, then you're not gonna endure. You're gonna wanna tap out. No, this endurance of hope is not a passive resig resignation to just suffer. Like, well, I'm just, I just wanna endure. Like, yeah, endurance is in there. No, this is a confident hope that stirs courage because it's not hope in our circumstances. It's not hope in your endurance or your ability to, to stay faithful. It's hope, it says, in Jesus Christ. It's hope in the one who it says, he will work all things out for good for those who know and love him. It's a certain hope. Like, I want you to know, as a Christian, you can ask questions. You should ask questions. You can, and often do, have doubts. But the hope that we have isn't in a, well, I hope it works out. It's a hope in the certainty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we do believe that Jesus will return. That we do believe that there will be a consummation of full redemption and restoration. That's what Christians believe. And so our hope is driven with steadfastness and patience and endurance and a long obedience in the same direction as what Eugene Peterson would say. We would call it gospel living. But regardless of the hostility, regardless of adversity, your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in the world to come that's ruling and reigning under the kingship of Jesus. 
So that helps us live through and endure almost any circumstances because we know this isn't all there is. So we don't have to live for today. We can live in today. We should live in today. But we have a hope for tomorrow that propels us forward into the future. And so faith is upward. Love, outward. Hope, onward, into the future. What you don't hear there is anything, anything inward. Because we're just not good objects of faith. Without the love of the Lord, you're, you're not gonna thrive in hope and love and faith. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin called these three things together, the, these three phrases, a brief definition of true Christianity. Faith, love, and hope. Faith putting trust in the past work of Jesus, love functioning in the present as followers of Jesus, hope longing for a future return of Jesus. Upward, outward, onward. And so I, I know that we, we need this. You might not even know you need this. But this faith, this love, this hope is what describes somebody whose faith and trust is in Jesus. How do we get there? I mean, I, I, I want to get there. I, I can't say that I perfectly have ever embodied these. I mean, I find myself at times struggling with doubt and, and, and faithlessness. I, I certainly struggle to, to love my neighbor as myself. I have times of, uh, of great discouragement. And what Paul's, and I know the Thessalonians probably did too, but he's saying, no, but when you go to those places and visit those places, where do you return to and what's your true north? And some of that's gonna have to be, on the, on the inward, it's gonna have to be from what is my actual identity? Who am I in Christ? And he addresses that a little bit in these next verses here. Verses four through five say this. As we see faithful followers flourish in their identity in Christ. Verse four through five. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he says, flourishing followers, faithful followers, the, the, those who can embody and are encouraged by, by faith, love, and hope, it's because your identity is in Christ. He calls the church not, hey, you bunch of individuals who sometimes maybe read your Bible, occasionally go to church, but are really just orphans and rebels and sinners. He says, no, no, Thessalonians, those of you whose faith is in Jesus, you are brothers and sisters now. Like there's a, a family implication to identity. That because of sin, you are spiritually orphaned. But because of your savior, you're now brought into the family as brothers and sisters. And not like, well, we adopted them because you know, they really needed us. And I mean, they are really difficult, let me tell you. He says, no, you, you are brothers and sisters loved by God. Like if you want to know what, what's my identity, you want to you look inward, who, who am I? 
How, how, how can I endure? You, you know, say, okay, am I loving myself well enough? Do I know myself? No, you can say, I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God. You're loved by God. That's your identity. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, your, your identity is brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, loved by God. Because you perfectly embodied faith, because you endured in hope, because you labored in love? No. That, that would get what we call the good news of the gospel backwards. No, we, we can work out our faith. We can labor in love for one another. We can endure in hope because God's first loved us. Because we're sons and daughters. Because we're brothers and sisters. Because God chose you. And you're like, hold up, did God chose me or did I choose God? Wait, are, are you saying God's in charge or, or is there man's free will? Do you, do you really wanna argue about that this morning? I mean, we, can, we can go, we can do that. But let me just tell you, Paul's not saying, hey, let me throw in some like theological hand grenade in the midst of faith, hope, and love. No, no, he's not trying to stir controversy. He's trying to instill comfort and assurance into the life of believers. To say that your faith in Jesus, your endurance in the hope of his return is not determined by how faithful you are, how much you can love, and how hopeful you are by the fact that God's already chosen you before the foundations of the world. That you're held by him. That you have great assurance in him. That he's talking about, yeah, the doctrine of election of his people. But I want you to know it's always used in the vein of reminding them of God's good character and love for them. His character and nature and love for you. Like we said, you can't outlove God's love for you. And so a thriving church, a flourishing church, is one that's formed by God, centered by God, and holds, preaches, teaches, counsels, coaches, points to a God-centered theology. That our greatest joy will come, our greatest thriving and flourishing will come, not when we're more self-centered, but when we're more God-centered. And so... He doesn't, like I said, want to stir controversy. He wants to bring comfort. And so these followers have great assurance, right? He's, he's saying, he says right here, I, I mean, I, I love this, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That word conviction means like steeled spine courage. The hey Thessalonians, we know you were minding your own business. Some of you were in the synagogue. Some of you were God-fearing Greeks. Some of you were just legit, like full-on pagans, going to temples, making sacrifices, doing all sorts of weird stuff. You were minding your own business. And then God's word came to you. And he said, not God's word only, but, but in power. And so if you're a Christian, at some point, somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody told you that there is a God who created everything. That sin does separate. But God's mercy and grace are paired with his justice and holiness. And in that, he pursues his people over and over and over again. And the apex of that pursuit is Jesus coming into history. Is Jesus living that life of perfection that none of us have lived? 
is Jesus dying that death that we all deserve for our sin. That Jesus in his resurrection empowers us to live new lives now and, and new lives forever. That's what we talk about eternal life now and forever. And we believe Jesus comes back, which, which stirs our hope that everything will be made new at that point. No more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. And out of that, somehow, you responded in a way that says, I want to be on team Jesus, or I trust Jesus, or my hope is in Jesus, or my faith is in Jesus, or I realize how much I'm loved by Jesus. And perhaps you pledged allegiance to Jesus in the waters of baptism, saying, I'm no longer gonna just have faith in myself and love myself and, 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 and try to have hope in myself, but I'm gonna give that over to the one who made me and knows me and loves me better than I can ever love myself. And you became a Christian. And your life changed. And is changing. And will change. And ultimately at that moment where you either meet God face to face in death or Jesus return, you will be perfected and called into glory. That's something to be hopeful for. And so he's saying, God is the ultimate hero of, of all the praise here. He's saying, hey, Thessalonians, I'm so excited that the word of God came to you, but it wasn't just words. There was power there. And that power, he says, came from the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's interesting here that he, he says that because there does have to be a words aspect to it. He can't just be like, well, I'm going to live out the gospel by being loving and sacrificial to people. Like, yes, you, sh you should do that, that's great. I'm gonna live the gospel by being hospitable. Be hospitable. Love your neighbors, engage with your community. Like, vote in ways to promote flourishing. Like, like run businesses well. Like, like, teach in schools. Like, do all the things. But at a certain point he says, the gospel came with words. That there was that explicit gospel truth about Jesus that I just laid out for you. And there might be some version of that. Maybe it's not always every part of that. But it's going to point to the person and work of Jesus. And so he doesn't, say, he doesn't say the words didn't come. He said the words came, but the, the words showed up. The, the words arrived, but they also arrived with power. And that power came from the Holy Spirit. So what that means, um, for, for you, if you're going to share Jesus with people, I, I think you should do that. Actually, one of my kids was like, hey, Dad, so like, as a Christian, like, is it my responsibility to like, tell my friends about Jesus? And I was like, yeah, it is. Not in every conversation, not at lunch. I mean, eventually, if you just are that guy, and you, you bring the sign out and everything, and nobody's going to eat lunch with you, and that's sad. And especially from middle school, high school, you're just going to get your butt kicked, so don't do that. But like, yeah, you should be a good friend and you should live a life of, uh, that pursues holiness and, and you should also give an account for the hope that's within you. Like that has to be there. But, but I want to encourage you that you're like, man, I, 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 gosh, I told my neighbor about Jesus. I told my parents about Jesus. I've got this family member and I, I pray for them and, and, and nothing happens. And I tell them about Jesus and they just rejected me. Like that can and will happen. And I want you to know it's not because you got something wrong. Because in order for somebody to hear the word of God and have it transform their, their heart and their soul and, and reset the trajectory of their entire eternity, power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that brings life. If you're hearing the words of God, if you are stirred to affection and faith and trust in Jesus, no, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And so we get to share God's word and then rest knowing it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do the heavy lifting. 
and, and likely and hopefully correct all the stupid things we said along the way or ways that we got it wrong, right? And so what, like, what can happen if you're a Christian is sometimes you're like, hey, um, man, I got, I got, my, my dad got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Like, like he got, like, yeah, he got saved by Billy Graham. No, he didn't. The Holy Spirit worked. Like there was thousands of people in that stadium and not all of them put their faith and trust in Jesus, but my dad did. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I've been discipled by and been in churches where the proclamation of God's word stirred my affections and changed my convictions and changed the way I live my life and changed even the way I saw myself. And some of those preachers and teachers and leaders, some that I've even worked with and all those things, they're not in ministry anymore or their ministries fizzled out or some of them got disqualified. And I'm not thankful for that, but I'm thankful that it was God's word that does the work to change. So, have your favorite preachers. That, that's great. Like, I can recommend a bunch of people you should podcast, and I hope that they finish their ministries well. And there's guys who've died, and you, you can listen to their stuff because you know that they ran their race well and finished. But, but I, I want you to know that, that like, it, it's not the preacher that saves you. It's not, it's not even preaching that changes you. That might just be the medium that God used to get God's word to you and the Holy Spirit does the work of transformation. So flourishing followers, they're not saved by powerful preachers. They're saved by the powerful God that those preachers proclaim. God is always the hero of the story. Leads us to our next verses here as we keep going on. Verse six and seven says this. And you, the church in Thessalonica, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Flourishing followers do, do imitate. Like there's an aspect of discipleship of Jesus. We say, hey, we are followers of Jesus. And that means we are hoping to imitate Jesus. And we should seek to imitate Jesus. Jesus is the example. But there's something that happens with us that you start walking with Jesus for a while, you start following Jesus for a while, um, you don't often find yourself, oh man, I am, I am crushing all of this. This is, this is so easy. This is so, so great to just live like Jesus. And, and when I don't, I just tell myself to try harder and do better. So, so Paul here says, you imitated us. Now I want to be clear, Paul's not saying there's a bunch of Pauls running around now. He's saying, no, you imitated us. He clarifies in another letter, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we all have to recognize that we allow influence in our lives in so many different ways. I mean, we allow a whole ton of influence in through here, right? We have influence in the podcasts we listen to, the books we read, the relationships we have, the rhythms of our life. I mean, the fact that we gather together as a church regularly, that's, that has a, a collective influence in some regard. And so, and so with that, it, it's a call to discernment to say, who am I following? Who am I imitating? And are they people that are pointing me back to Jesus? Are they people that are striving to imitate Jesus or imitating Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are they people that are, that are leading me away from Jesus? And so faithful followers are first imitators. And then as they follow Jesus, as we follow Jesus, Again, I'm encouraged that like every leader I've ever learned from, they've all been really flawed. I'm really flawed. 
I have great confidence that y'all are really flawed too, so it's okay. And so, that said, we keep pointing one another towards Jesus. And those who are first following Jesus at times get to be leaders within the church, which we'll talk more about next week. But, but the call here is to live a life that isn't perfect, but maybe and should be imitatable. That there's aspects of your new life, working out your faith, laboring in love, enduring in hope, that end up being imitatable to those around you, pointing people towards God. And he says, this church, you Thessalonians, you guys are absolutely imitatable. And what I love about this is he doesn't say, well, you're imitatable because your music's awesome, your preacher's fantastic, your marketing is on point, or you guys are the best at loving the community and doing good works and all that. No, he says, here's, here's why you're a great example. Because you received the word of God, not just when everything was going awesome, but you received it in great affliction and great difficulty, and you did so with joy. I mean, maybe you've had some aspects of the Thessalonian journey. I mean, somebody became a Christian in Thessalonica, all of a sudden your non-Christian family and friends, they don't understand you. The city that you're in um, is passing laws um, that are opposed to everything you believe in. Your economic lives are disruptive because all the civic and economic lives were all tied to kind of the state-sponsored, you know, religions, if you will. Um, You've got people that are explicitly hostile to you. Um, I mean, you're part of a church, but your whole social and economic lives are disruptive. Um, uh, Civic life, like I said, tied to all these different cults. Government thinks you're unpatriotic because you don't think they're the highest uh, authority, but God is. Other religions think that you're not inclusive enough or that you're an atheist because you, you don't accept their pantheon of gods that they worship. You say you worship the one that is the way, the truth, and the life that no one else comes to the Father except through Jesus. And in the midst of all of that, you have joy. <laughs> How is that possible? If every earthly aspect of your life has some sort of, of hostility and adversity towards who God has called you to be and how God has ordered the world, he says again, you have joy brought by the Holy Spirit. This, he's reminding the Thessalonians, it's hard to say that, sorry, reminding this church over and over and reminding us if we're gonna have joy, if we're gonna flourish as followers, we're gonna have to be reliant on the Holy Spirit for his power, for his guidance. And so, last couple verses as we close, says this, it's a church that flourishes in sending and and in evangelism, and verses eight through 10 say this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything For they themselves reported concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so as Paul closes this section, uh, as kind of an overview of how the rest of the letter is going to, to break out. He's saying, hey, you're a church that's known and loved. 
The rest of the churches in the region know about your faithfulness. Mercy Fellowship, I want you to know that you are a church that is known and loved here in Marysville, in Snohomish County, in the Northwest. Uh, I mean, we've sent some people to Florida, so some people know about us there. Like, there has been, like, on a Sunday, right, we've got 120-ish people that gather here, we've got about 200 uh, that call us home. But over the last, like, 17 years, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of people that have come in and out of our church. Some to plant other churches. Many who, who've come in and then left the area. We have a military base here, so we always got people coming in and out. And so we got people that, that love and know our church, I mean, all over the U.S. Like, praise God for that. And, and I pray that there's awesome churches in those places that as people come to our area, they come in and plug in with us and, and our disciples and whatever. But like, but just know like, whether we're 120 people or 500 people or 1,000 people or whatever, like, there's actually just one church. God's church. And he's always reshuffling the deck and moving, the t- moving people around on musical chairs, redeploying people for different purposes and reasons. So we're thankful when people come and serve and engage with us for a season, and we're thankful when they're sent out and they go and serve and love other places. Because we know that, Lord willing, they, ha- they, they grew in the Lord while they were here and we enjoyed them being with us. And so, the, the last area, though, that I want to encourage us is, is the way that Paul encourages here in verses 9 through 10. He hears a report of how the church is doing. He's like, wow, you guys, you guys are faithful. You guys are loving one another. You guys are enduring and you're hopeful. And he's also saying, hey, and, and there's a way I think you can grow, too. And that's in evangelism. I mean, Mercy Fellowship, we have endured so much the last year, the last three years, the last five years, the last 15 years. And we're still here and we praise God for that. And there's a way that we can keep growing and that is in actively sharing the truth of the gospel with our friends and neighbors. Because he, you know, when Paul showed up, we read this last week, he showed up to the synagogue and there were some like God-fearing Greeks. But when he hears then from later a report from Timothy on how the church is doing, he's saying, oh, a whole bunch of you turned from idols. Like I said, a whole bunch of you were, were legit pagans. He's like, the church is growing and it's because people are turning from their idols. And so with that is a call to repentance, that faithful followers turn from idols who are dead and lifeless and powerless and, and are so easily intoxicating, can so easily enslave us with all these God substitutes. And so he's coming back to like, what is the essence of what it means to be a Christian? Well, it means that your faith is in God, so it's no longer in what you placed faith in before. And then he says that, that you now live a life serving the living God. So it's not just a, all right, I'm saved now, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna camp out. But no, now you're serving the living God. How do you do that? By loving one another, by loving the church, by loving your neighbor. And that, so you've abandoned idols and, and you've replaced it with love of the living God that leads to love of others. Like you and I, we're all gonna serve something or someone and Paul's saying, hey, no, no I'm encouraged because you've served God. And then finally, he says, you're also waiting for the return of the resurrected Jesus. And in doing so, it's not a call to passivity. It's a call to courage. It's a call to endurance. 
It's a call to, to faith in, in God, love of one another, and enduring in hope as we continue to trust Jesus.